really enjoying going through this series with you, the series we call Awkward Family. You call it that because family is awkward. And so is marriage. So today we are going to be talking about awkward marriage. Is marriage awkward? I offer you as evidence photo number one. What is, I, yeah, wow, that hurts my eyeballs, right? Okay, and then, okay, so that's awkward. Well, okay, what about photo number two? Because, you know, sometimes you want your family photo to say we're married, we have a bird, and an AK-47, <laughs> right? And, oh, and we've tricked out our AK-47 with both a scope and a bayonet in case we want to stab from long distance. Makes no sense. All right, what do you think? Maybe from the 70s? Maybe. Just maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Marriage is awkward, folks. Marriage is very awkward. Marriage is hard. Marriage is hard. I remember being in a store one time, and I found this beautiful piece of art. This marriage is like a deck of cards. In the beginning, all you need is two hearts and a diamond. You read ahead, didn't you? But in the end, you wish you had a club and a spade. That is gold. That is gold. Why? Because the honeymoon wears off. Right? The honeymoon wears off, and then you find yourself married to another sinner. One who's just, you know what? Not one just like you. The problem is one different than you. Right? Like, if, if Shannon would just be like me, we'd be fine. That's self-love. That's self-idolatry, right? The, the problem in marriage is not only am I married to another sinner, but I'm married to one who's different than me. And then that becomes really hard. Marriage is awkward. It's hard. And so we're either going to go toward a club and a spade, or here's where I want to go today. Let's go towards covenant and context. That's what we're going to talk about about marriage. We're going to talk about covenant and context. Now, in order to get to that, I thought, where should we go in the scriptures? We're going to go right back to the beginning to see when marriage was created. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. Let's look at this together. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You ever wonder why a rib? Isn't that kind of 
random? I heard it explained this way, that God and Adam were having a conversation and God was saying, you know, Adam, you're alone. I don't like it. I want to make you a helpmate that is fit for you. She's going to be perfect. She's going to be awesome, beautiful, intelligent, wise, witty, caring, loving, kind. She'll cook. She'll clean. It'll be perfect. And Adam said, what will that cost me? And he said, an arm and a leg. And he said, what can I get for a rib? And that is how you alienate half your audience with just one joke right there. (laughs) Bam! Pretty efficient of me. Pretty efficient. All right, listen. No, here's why I rib. You notice Adam said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, meaning this is human. Just like me, this is human. Which means Eve, just like Adam, is an equal image bearer of God himself. And a rib is that part of him that is very close to his heart. That's why a rib. And so now we're into the passage and we're looking at this and this starts to get us towards covenant because if you look at the very last part there, the passage there ends with the idea that you leave your father and your mother and you cleave, some translations say leave and cleave, or you hold fast to your wife and the two become one flesh. Now when Jesus himself quoted that passage out of Genesis, he added to it. And what he added is this. He said, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. This is the idea of one flesh covenant. Look, have you ever glued two pieces of paper together? And then you let it dry, and later you realize you made a mistake and you went and tried to separate them? It doesn't work well. Right? Tears and pieces of that paper end up, and it's, it's not clean. It doesn't work. Why? It wasn't made to be separated after the glue. In in marriage, we become one flesh. That is like spiritual gorilla glue, right? Like between two people and you are bonded together and you become one. And Jesus is saying, don't try to rip that apart because if you do, look, what happens when, this is one flesh right here. What if we split me in true and rip me apart? It's going to be gross and messy and ugly, right? Marriage, you become one flesh. We're not supposed to try to separate that. What I'm talking about is the biblical perspective of covenant marriage. We see that in Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. The idea of covenant is that it is a promise. It is a commitment regardless of the actions of the other. I'm on the hook 100% to upkeep this covenant. The Bible talks about marriage in that way. Now, it's best to understand covenant almost in contrast to contract. A contract is a conditional agreement. I do for you, you do for me. Tit for tat, right? So, so I'm going to sell you my truck for $10,000. If you don't give me $10,000, guess what? No truck. If I don't give you my truck, you're not going to give me $10,000. It's conditional. That's a contract. That is not the biblical perspective on marriage. Instead, marriage is supposed to be covenant. I'm on the hook 100% regardless of the actions of another. And we see that in how God set up a covenant with Abraham. It was all dependent upon God. We see that in how God set up a covenant with us through Christ. It all depended on Jesus. That's covenant. Now, unfortunately, we enter marriage with a contract perspective. We have all these expectations. In fact, whatever attracted you to your spouse 
that became a hidden contract. That became, you expect that that will continue. I married you because of this. I expect it to continue. It's a hidden contract. And men and women, we approach this just a little bit differently. So men marry women expecting them not to change. (laughs) Women marry men expecting them to change. And you know what the problem is, right? Women change. And men don't. (laughs) Right? And that's a problem. The problem is the contract's always going to be broken. And so what do we do? We quit. Breach of contract. Look, marriage marriage is not supposed to be 50-50. Does that shock you? 50-50 marriage sounds so, so judicious, so fair, so right. But you just... You just took a Trojan horse inside the walls. Here's what what the 50-50 marriage implies. For the rest of my marriage to Shannon, I will keep a ledger sheet. And I'm going to keep track. Am I giving too much? Is she giving, dang it, is she giving too little? This is not fair. You know what? I'm out. I quit. That's a 50-50 marriage. So when the other person isn't upholding their 50%, I am allowed to quit that contract. But covenant is not 50-50. Covenant is 100-100. I am on the hook 100% to do for Shannon regardless of what she does for me. 100%. And she is toward me 100%. That's covenant. And, And we can define it this way, that marriage covenant is this. It's an irrevocable, lifelong commitment before God to unconditionally care for another person. And look at that last line. Who will certainly disappoint you and let you down. But you are on the hook 100% regardless. So when an engaged couple wants to get married through our church, I don't do this as much anymore. Pastor Jared does most of these. But when I meet with them, because they have to do a pastoral interview for us to clear them, And when I meet with them, I go over that definition right there. And then I look them straight in the eyes and I ask them this question. Are you sure that's what you want me to do to you? (laughs) Really? Are you sure that's what you want me to do to you? Folks, this is why the marriage ceremony is the way it is. We get all your friends and family, everybody important in your life, we get them all together in a room. And then we make you stand up before them and before God and you promise you make a promise. Why? Because marriage is hard. If it were easy, you wouldn't need to promise. I don't promise to eat bacon. I just do. You don't need to make me promise. It's good. It's easy. Marriage, you have to promise because it will be hard. It will be awkward. And so what we need to do when we embrace covenant marriage, we need to change our success criteria. Usually our success criteria is one of contract. Look, look, this is success criteria of contract. You defend your rights and you limit your responsibilities. If you negotiate contracts for a living, you know that's a good contract right there. Defend your rights, limit your responsibilities, and that's how most of us approach marriage. But look at success in covenant. Instead, you surrender your rights and you assume your responsibilities. That's different. That's covenant marriage. And covenant marriage is a game changer. And I want you to get it. I want you to grasp it. But now I want to shift to talking about context. Talking covenant, we're talking context. 
And I want to talk about that because, okay, if marriage is so hard, then why did God make it? Why did he do it? I'm glad you asked. So it's all about context. You see, the big problem in marriage is that we assume the wrong context. We assume the context is my happiness, my satisfaction, my fulfillment. You complete me. That's the context. And because I think you meet that, I'll marry you. That's the context we assume. And then what we expect, of course, is the fairy tale marriage. We expect, quote, they lived happily ever after. And, and you and I both know it doesn't work like that. And then we're all confused. It's because we've assumed the wrong context for marriage. What if the context or the purpose of marriage had little to do with me and everything to do with God? What if it's about eternity and redemption? What if it's about sanctification and, and, and service? What if it's about his kingdom and not my kingdom? What if God is up to something through all human history and in light of all that, he said, let's do marriage. That's a different context. What if it's more about God than about me? I think it is. And so what I want to do is I want to go back to that passage in Genesis. But here's the thing. This week as I was studying in preparation for this, I saw something I had not noticed before. Because I think we got to take that passage we've all read already and we need to put it in context. So we're going to start a few verses earlier before Eve was even created. Look at this with me, if you will. We'll start in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. There's the context. Here it is. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now we tend to be very familiar with that last sentence right there. Right? Not good for the man to be alone. Okay, we get that, right? And we assume something romantic over the centuries that that has all to do with us, our satisfaction, our fulfillment, our happiness. That's why God did it, right? You missed the context. Look at the context. The context is God has a role for humanity to fulfill in his creation. It's called the garden mandate. We're supposed to work the garden. If you dial back to Genesis chapter 1, more context, we find that God gave us as humanity dominion over the created order, over animals and plants. We're supposed to go build the kingdom of God. Oh, and then secondly, he kicks in there that that there's going to be a trial, a spiritual trial. We're going to be tempted and tested. There will be issues of faith and trust and obedience and idolatry that will come into the scene. And with those two things in mind, then God said, not good for the man to be alone. We're going to do marriage. That's the context right there. That's it. Therefore, he said, it's not good for the man to be alone. Therefore, he created Eve. Therefore, he created marriage. And that's the context. And I want to tease that out in three ways. The first one is this. Synergy in service. The concept, excuse me, the concept of synergy is that we are better together than apart. That the whole is more than the sum of its individual parts. That synergy together, we're better. 
And evidently, God has something for us to do. And there is synergy in service to the king and to the kingdom. Again, God has a plan for history, for humanity, for eternity, for redemption. And that plan, it's so much bigger than your life. It's so much bigger than your spouse. It's so much bigger than your marriage. It's so much bigger than your family. And that's the context. God has given us dominion over the world. We're supposed to go advance his kingdom. Redemption and eternity are in view. And so there is synergy in service to the king. That is why marriage was created. It's better to be together for some of us than apart. Okay, that's synergy in service. The second thing I want to pull out is sanctification. Sanctification, uh, what I'm saying there is that marriage is a wonderful training ground for your spiritual growth, for your becoming Christ-like. See, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're supposed to be coming like him, and marriage is great for that. Marriage tends to be a pretty crummy pipeline for your blessing and your fulfillment and meeting all your needs, but it's great for sanctification. I'm thinking here of a book by Gary Thomas called Sacred Marriage. In that book, he said, what if God intended marriage for your holiness, not for your happiness? What if he intended marriage for your sanctification, not for your satisfaction? Those are big thoughts. Again, we are called to become Christ-like. Now, what if you have a rotten spouse? Raise your hand. No, don't do that. Okay. <laughs> what if you have a rotten spouse? And then you are called by covenant to love and serve that spouse day after day, year after year, and it's hard, but I will tell you, every day and every year, you are becoming more like Jesus himself, who lays down his life and loves his rotten spouse Day after day, you are being trained to be like Christ. Here's the thing. If marriage is all about my satisfaction, I have no context for a crummy marriage. I'm sorry, I don't know what to tell you. But if marriage is about my sanctification, I've got a context for a, a difficult marriage. I've got a hook to hang that on. You see that? That's sanctification. Now, the third one I want to get after is selfless love. This is a part of our sanctification. And this is, look, marriage is a perfect context to get us towards selfless love. Now, unfortunately, many of us, probably most of us, went into marriage with a vision that kind of matches this guy right here. I love it. You don't know whether you should laugh or not, right? A wife, because beer is heavy. Okay, that picture is pretty funny, but tragic. It's humorous, but it sums up the unfortunate approach that most of us bring to marriage. Here's the enigma of marriage. The more you try to meet your own needs, the less fulfilled you are. The more you try to meet your spouse's needs, the more fulfilled you are. That's the enigma of marriage. 
And you might say, wait, time out, pastor. Like, how, but I need to have my needs met. How does that work? 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 to 19. Let's look at these together. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now stop there for a moment. So far, I've not said a word about your marriage. That has nothing to do with your spouse. That's all you and God right there. You abide in him. He abides in you. You are fulfilled in his love. He's loving you. Perfect love casts out fear. You are set. You are drinking deeply from the fountain of God. You're not trying to quench your, your thirst and your spouse. No way. God alone. Now with that in mind, now the last sentence. We love because he first loved us. That's where your marriage came in. You have been so fulfilled and quenched your thirst in God, you now approach your spouse to love and to serve and to give, not to take. Yeah, you need your, your needs met. God provided for that with himself. When you see marriage in its proper context, you don't try to meet your needs through your spouse. You meet it from God himself, and then you approach your spouse to give. It's wholly appropriate. And the reason why is because God has no needs. He's God. He is the perfect giver. He is the perpetual giver. He expects us to come to him thirsty and just drink from him and take from him and not give. He is the giver. And he quenches our thirst. Now we go to our spouse to give and to love and to serve because he first loved us. Marriage is about selfless love. It is about dying to self, laying down my rights, unconditionally serving another person. I am being trained in Christ-likeness. Unfortunately, most of us don't approach it that way, and we have awkward family, awkward marriage. Yes, you, you need loved. You need served. You need fulfilled. Go to God. Go to God. Therefore, that's marriage in context. So we've seen these three things. We've seen synergy, sanctification, and selfless love. That's the context right there. That is why God created marriage. That's the context. Now, we've talked about covenant. We've talked about context. And what I want to do next is I want, you to help, I want to help you feel it a little bit. Because marriage is tough, right? Marriage, is marriage difficult? Amen. If you said amen too loud, you got trouble on the way home, okay? <laughs> so, <clears throat> but I, wanna, I want you to, uh, to help you feel it, because sometimes marriage, what it feels like, it feels like dancing in a minefield, right? Like, I mean, you're dancing with your, your, your mate, and, and just things are explained. It's difficult, right? Sometimes it's dancing in a, a minefield, and it's harder than we dreamed, but we made a promise, and the only way to find your life is to lay your own life down. And we'll be okay because Jesus keeps his promise. His promise is true and he fulfills us. So in the face of all this chaos, baby, I can dance with you. Yeah, I ripped all that off from a song. I've told you already that Shannon's musical crush is Fernando Ortega. It's not really true because now Fernando's old, so she chose a younger guy. And so now she's into Andrew Peterson. And I'm bitter. And jealous. 
not true. But uh, Peterson is a marvelous lyricist. And he wrote a great song about marriage that captures the covenant in the context. And it is called Dancing in the Minefields. Enjoy this. Well, I was 19, you were 21 The year we got engaged And everyone said we were much too young But we did it anyway We got the rings for 40 each From a pawn shop down the road And we said our vows and took the leap Now 15 years ago So I try to compete. I took Shannon's favorite chair out of our family room and put it in a stream. She didn't find it sexy. It's a great song. I hope it lets you feel 
covenant in context in marriage that it is a minefield. It is a storm out there, and, but we're dancing together. Let's go. Let's stick. Let's do this thing. I hope it helps you wrap your heart around it because what I want to do next is I want to give you six practical things that you can do. Six application points. The first three are you do alone. The last three are you do with your spouse. And the first one is this. I want you to embrace your spouse as God's gift to you. Specifically chosen for you by an all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving God. The sovereign one chose that spouse for you as a gift and gave her, gave him to you. Not for your satisfaction, but for your service and for your sanctification. And I want you to embrace that gift. I want you to get alone with God this week, just you and God, and I want you to reach out and I want you to receive your spouse as God's gift to you. I want you to recommit to that marriage in your heart. And though your spouse isn't there, I, I want you metaphorically to grab your spouse's hand and go dancing in the minefield. Go sailing into the storms. Go kicking down the doors. Embrace that gift. And then secondly, I want you to quit comparing. Again, your spouse is God's gift to you. Quit worrying about the gift that he gave somebody else. Embrace God's gift to you. And remember, Teddy Roosevelt had that great line that he said, comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison, because you're fine with your spouse until you compared, Right? I mean, think how it went with Adam and Eve. Were Adam and Eve satisfied with each other? Yeah, there was no one else, right? There's no comparison, right? So like when God brings naked Eve to Adam, Adam doesn't compare. He goes, woman, naked, good. That's it, right? But we compare. And that's the thief of joy, right? Right there. I want you to know that the comparison game is rigged. Do you know how you got married? It's because you lied. False advertising at best, right? We all put our best foot forward. And you bought into that lie and you got married. And after you got married, you found out there's another foot. And that foot's nasty, right? Here's what I'm saying. Nobody, nobody knows the worst in my wife more than me. That's a sacred trust in marriage. The safety of covenant marriage. I know the worst in Shannon. Now I meet another woman and you know what I see? Best foot forward. So here's the comparison game. I always compare the worst in my wife to the best in another woman. The game's rigged. She'll lose every time. Stop comparing. Stop it. Just embrace God's gift to you. All right? And then third, what I want you to do is to work on yourself. Fix yourself. Hey, you know what the biggest problem with your marriage is? It's you. Some of you are highly offended that I said that. But it's you. I I don't do much marriage counseling anymore. uh, But when I did... I always had a goal that I wanted the couple to leave my office with both of them saying in their own minds, the biggest problem in my marriage is me. Not the other, it's me. And I knew if I could get them both there, they were going to be good. If I couldn't get them there, it wouldn't end well. The biggest problem in your marriage is you. After all, there's only one person you can change. You can't change your spouse. 
You can only change yourself. And so you let God deal with him and his crap. You're going to embrace marriage as covenant in context, and you're going to serve, and you're going to be sanctified in that. Work on yourself. All right, those three you do on your own. The next one, number four, you do together. I want you to evaluate together this week. If you're married, I want you to get alone with your spouse, just the two of you, and I want you to ask the question. On a scale of one to ten, one is horrible, ten is awesome. Scale of one to ten, where's our marriage? That alone might develop some good discussion. But but I want you to choose a number, and here's why. I don't care what number you choose. If you choose a four, the next question is the important one. Ready? If you're a four, what will it take to be a five? Answer that together. If you're an eight, praise Jesus. What will it take to be a nine? I want you to evaluate, because look at number five. I want you to invest. I want you to invest in your marriage. See, when marriage is awkward, when marriage is difficult, you didn't marry the wrong person. You married a person. And that's why it's hard. A good marriage cannot be found. It must be built from the ground up. When it's hard, you will invest and you will stick and you will build a good marriage or, or you will quit. And if you quit, it is likely you will become a serial quitter. Good marriage cannot be found. It must be built. And so invest in your marriage. Look, folks, we invest in all kinds of things. We invest in our kids and in our houses, in our careers, in our reputation. We invest in our health, in our education. Why not in our marriage? There's two most important relationships in your life. Your relationship with God, and then if you're married, your relationship with your spouse. If those two are rocking, bring it. Life can throw anything at me. and we'll, we'll get through. We'll be okay. We'll dance in the minefield together. But if one of those is hurting, we're in trouble. So why not invest in your marriage? What I want to suggest is that you read a book a year about marriage. Use your anniversary as a trigger point to sit down with your spouse and say, what book we read in this year? If you want suggestions, you go on our website under resources, go down to marriage, and there's some books suggested there. Choose one of those. Buy two copies. Read a chapter a week and then go to a coffee shop and discuss that chapter next chapter next week. Next year, next book. Well, that sounds like work, doesn't it? Yes! Invest in your marriage! Yes! We should do that. Remember, a good marriage cannot be found. It must be built. All right, sixth and last, I want you to start fighting. You chuckle because you're thinking, oh, we're good. We got got number six, Pastor. We'll work on the first five for you, though. But number six, we're good here. Here's what I'm saying. I want you to fight a lot. But I want you to fight for your spouse not against your spouse. I want you to fight for your marriage. Fight for what he wants. Fight for what she wants, not for what you want. You understand in marriage, you wear the same color. You wear the same jersey. You're on the same team. Stop fighting in the kitchen. 
Lots of fights happen in the kitchen. What happens there is we put our butt against the counter. We lean against counters across from each other, right? Because we're opponents. Football, the person across from you, that's your opponent. And the football's in the middle. And the goal is that I win and she loses. I want to be right. I'm okay if she's wrong. I want to win. We're opponents. Get out of the kitchen. Go sit on a couch like you're sitting right now, shoulder to shoulder. Because when you're shoulder, that's your teammate. You wear the same jersey. And the football's there. The problem's there. And we together as a team, we're going to work on a problem together. And we win together or we lose together. If you go into a conflict wanting to win as your spouse loses, then I would tell you, you have both lost already. Win together. Start fighting for her. Fight for him. Fight for what that person wants. Fight for your marriage. I want you to fight a lot in that way. All right, let me land here. I realize that I'm probably poking at a lot of areas of pain in this room right now because there are probably a lot of difficult marriages. I'll tell you, uh, Shannon and I, we've got a great marriage. We don't have a perfect marriage. It's been hard at times, but we've stuck and we've built and we've invested and therefore we have a really, really good marriage. I know that there are issues of pain in this room hearing these words today. But here's what I want you to catch. Look, we serve a Lord who laid his life down for us. He gave his life away. That means he is able to bring you from darkness to light, from death to being alive. If he can do that in your life, he can do that in your marriage. That's the kind of God he is. He wants to write a story of redemption onto your marriage if you would let him. That's the kind of God he is. And we want to be like him. Like in a minute, we're going to sing and we're going to worship in light of the fact that Christ gave his life away. That's the kind of God he is. And we love him for it and we worship him for it. And therefore, we want to be just like him. We want to give our life away. We want to be like Jesus. Whether you're single or married, I want us to do that. So let me pray for that if I Father, we come before you humbly because we admit openly that we have pushed marriage out of the context you gave and we pushed it into something altogether different. We've made it about us and our satisfaction and our happiness. Fulfill me. Serve me. And yet you have this wildly big context all of history, uh, your kingdom and your goals and what you're doing in the world. And into that, you called us alongside each other in service and in sanctification. And we want to strive towards that, but we've got to repent to do it, Lord God. We know that we have messed it up. And Father, I know if there are painful marriages in this room, I pray right now, they would be looking to you and turning to you. They would trust you and ask for your grace that you would pour yourself out into those marriages particularly. Father God, you are the covenant keeper. You are the wildly selfless lover. We love you for it. We want to be like you. We want to be trained to be like you. But right now, we want to worship you for the way Jesus gave his life away for us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.